Will you please join me as I pray? Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. God, I pray that as we survey this prayer by the prophet Isaiah, that in the reading of your word, you would teach us how to pray. I pray that you would give us courage, courage to read these words and then to with whole and expectant hearts pray these words. That we would be the sorts of people that say, we want you, our compassionate father, to come be with us. We don't want you to hold back. We want all that comes with your presence. So would you make us that sort of people, expectant in those ways. Use this text, these moments, by your spirit to accomplish that end. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a book called Switch, written by Chip and Dan Heath, about change management. A really interesting book about how, how cultures and companies change. And they tell the story of the malnutrition that was plaguing Vietnam. One in three people in Vietnam for many years was, was significantly malnourished. And this had become kind of gathered the attention of lots of different organizations. And, and so several large organizations with large staffs and big budgets had come in to try to address a national problem that was really significantly affecting this people. And as the story goes, as Chip and Dan Heath kind of explain, that these groups would come in and have big budgets and big staffs, and they'd survey a national problem and come back and say, this is a really complex problem, multi-layered, multi-faceted, and it is going to require a very complex solution, equally multifaceted. And they would run through and spend money and time and energy, and at the end, one in every three people was still significantly malnourished in Vietnam. And then there was one small nonprofit that came in and they had a very small budget, very small staff, and they traveled from village to village interviewing people and finding the families whose children were thriving. And they interviewed these mamas and looked at their children and they had the very same resources as everyone else who was malnourished. And they actually began to learn that in these homes, something was happening. The children, rather than being fed in the morning and evening, as was the cultural norm, were fed four times a day, the same amount of food, but split up into four small meals, and the mamas would sit with them and feed them to make sure they, they ate it all. They took this information and trained a nation. They went from village to village and shared this news, and it radically changed the health of an entire country. And the punchline for the Heath brothers is this. Oftentimes when confronting really complex problems, we assume it's going to require a complex answer. But the truth is, the vast majority of really complex problems have simple solutions. There's oftentimes one thing that if you could identify and deal with the one thing, it actually has tentacles into all the things. And so the, the solution is not multifaceted and complex, even though the problem is. And as we arrive in this final installment in the book of Isaiah, in Isaiah 63 and 64. In part, what we have is the prophet Isaiah saying, here's the one thing. He's saying, 
It's true that the problem is complex, multifaceted, multi-generational, relational brokenness, resistance to the ways of God that has led to the people being destroyed. By the time we arrive in Isaiah 63 and 64, we are dealing with the people who have been ransacked by Babylon. Their temple has been burned. They have been exiled. Everything feels like it's in rubble. And they're wondering, how are we ever going to address this very complex, all-encompassing problem? And Isaiah is going to prophetically invite the people to identify that there's actually a very simple, singular solution. The descent of God. The felt presence of God. He's going to say to them, and I believe say to us as well, that when we confront multifaceted problems and we go, I don't know how we're ever going to solve this. He's going to speak back to us and say, hey, it's, it's not as complex as you think it is. If we all together were to experience the felt presence of God, things would be radically different. It's actually simple and singular. And so we're on a journey to understand what this singular thing is. If, if Isaiah were to summarize this prayer that he is praying over the people, as he's praying for the one thing, as he's leaning in and cutting through the clutter, this is what he is praying. He's praying, compassionate father, come be with us and don't hold back. We will see that this is one of those enter-at-your-own-risk sort of prayers. But Isaiah is convinced that it is the singular thing. And I would say for you and I today, it is the singular thing for the complex challenges that we're facing. Underneath it all, what we need most is the compassionate Father to come be with us and to not hold back. In order to make sense of this prayer, as it is teaching us how to pray, we're going we're gonna to ask three questions of it. One, who is it that's praying? Two, what most pointedly are they asking for? And three, who are they praying to? So who is praying? The people that are praying are a nearly unrecognizable shell of what they once were. A nearly unrecognizable shell of what they once were. They are praying in such a way in a recognition that they are, they are not what they used to be. It comes across in this way in 63 and verse 16. We just heard Sarah read it for us. It says this, for you are our father, though Abraham does not know us and Israel does not acknowledge us. Now, commentators would tell us that the reason Abraham and Israel don't acknowledge or know them is because they wouldn't recognize them. Abraham was called by God. Israel was blessed by God. They were the forefathers by which these people have their identity. And what he's saying is this prayer is if our forefathers who heard from God and were blessed by God and told what we were going to be like were transported from that point to this point, they would look at us and go, huh? E excuse me? Um, it's kind of like going to that high school reunion. Some of you aren't quite to that age, but you'll get there where you, you get to go to the high school reunion. It's been more years than I'd like to admit since I graduated. And you go back to the group, and if the people aren't wearing the name tag with their picture from high school, you, you probably wouldn't have recognized them, you know, those folks. And it's kind of like, I don't know all that's gone on, but I can tell it's been a rough few years, you know? <laughs> like, that's what this text is saying. It's like, man, they've been worked over. 
If their own fathers were to come back in, they wouldn't recognize them. Israel is looking in the mirror going, what has happened to us? There was such promise. God had spoken about all that he intended to bless us and through us to bless the nations. But here we are sitting in rubble wondering what went wrong. They are a nearly unrecognizable shell of what they used to be. It's because sin entered their story and took them further than they ever intended for it to, which incidentally is what sin always does. It enters through a pinpoint and then it works and it works until it leavens the whole dough, until it works through the whole system. And I think in this prayer, what is sketched out for us is just very simply kind of six stages of how this works. I'm just going to run through this very quickly to help us articulate how we become a shell of what we once were. This is the process. It always looks something like this. It starts in verse 17a and it says, Oh Lord, why do you make us wander from your ways? It starts with wandering. They have wandered away from the ways of God and they're praying to God going, Isaiah is praying on behalf of the people and saying, God, you're sovereign. You could prevent this. Why don't you? Why do you, why do you make us to wander away? He's wrestling with God's sovereignty, even in the midst of their rebellion and saying, we have wandered away from the ways of God. This is where it always starts. Dipping our toes into sin and going, maybe just maybe there's satisfaction or joy to be found in departing from obeying God. Like I've been trying this out. I've been walking with God, but it hasn't panned out the way that I thought it would. I'm lonely. It's hard. And I think maybe, just maybe, if I were to go there, it would provide some satisfaction. And we begin to wander away. It always starts with wandering. Maybe in small ways to start. But then very quickly, in the same verse, what you see is wandering leads to hardening. Did you see that? Verse 17, O Lord, why do you make us wander from your ways and harden our hearts so that we fear you not? The wandering heart is a desensitized heart. When you continue to play with sin, continue to hope that sin is going to deliver what you had hoped God would and he didn't in your timetable. And so now you're wandering and you're exploring. What happens is a heart that used to be tender to sin becomes desensitized to it, starts to become comfortable with it. It becomes hard. The tender becomes hard. So wandering leads to hardening, leads to settling down in. It leads to settling. Verse 5 of chapter 64 says it this way. Behold, you were angry and we had sinned. And in our sins, we have been a long time. Shall we be saved? This is the idea of plopping down in the midst of it. I was dipping my toes in. I became desensitized, and now I've just settled down in. And it may even be that you've begun to articulate it as part of your identity. This is just who I am. I'm kind of an angry person, or I'm a passionate person. This sexual desire, this pursuit, I, I feel like I deserve it. In fact, it's, it's just part and parcel of who I am. And all of a sudden, we settle down into something that was a brief wandering that we became desensitized to. And now, what the text says is we've just been here a while. And the question begins to bubble up, could I ever be saved from this? Can you rescue from this? Which leads 
not just from wandering to hardening to settling, but to being polluted. In verse 6a, this is what it says. We have all become like one who is unclean and all of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. The idea is that even our best efforts are now polluted by this thing that we've settled down into. It's coursing through all of us. Living in a house with four boys, I can't tell you how many times I've heard Ashley say, why didn't you tell me when you spilled it on your shirt? Or when you got the grass stain, if I had been able to treat it right off, it would have been, but now the stain is set. It's down in. I'll work my magic. You know, she's always like, I'll try. But I think if you would have just told me right off, this is in part what he's saying is that it's, it's polluted. The garment, it's actually the stain has been set because you've settled down into it. Which in the following verse leads to, it leads to a fading or a melting the structure of a thing begins to come undone. Verse 6b and 7, we all fade like a leaf. Our iniquities like the wind take us away. This is a crumbling autumn leaf that's about to be blown away. There's not much left. Verse 7, there's no one who calls upon your name who rouses himself to take hold of you for you have hidden your face from us. You have made us to melt in the hand of our iniquities. Do you hear it? The crumbling leaf, the melted puddle, there's no structure or substance left because when you settle down into it, when it becomes your identity, you're desensitized to it, it deconstructs you. Which brings us to the termination point in verse 10 and 11. We move from wandering to hardening to settling to polluting to fading or melting and ultimately we are led into devastation or ruins. Verse 10 and 11, your holy cities have become a wilderness. Zion has become a wilderness. Jerusalem, a desolation. Our holy and beautiful house where our fathers praised you has been burned by fire. All of our pleasant places have become ruins. Do you hear it? This is a gut-wrenching prayer of a people looking in the mirror and going, sin worked us over in ways we never thought possible. The question for our purposes is where, where do you find yourself along that spectrum? Is it certain areas where you're just dipping your toes into something and going, well, I don't know, maybe, maybe there's some satisfaction to be found outside of the ways of God. Have you become desensitized in certain areas? Just settling down into it, declaring, well, this is just who I am, such that it begins to pollute even your best actions, that it's just in you, that the way that sin courses and works. Listen, friends, the sin in your life wants all of you. It is not satisfied with some little piece of you. It wants you. You see, when we begin to consider this is the way it works, we can feel a little bit frantic I know I do at times, surveying the landscape, and I go, gosh, these are like multi-generational things that lead to, ruptional, to, to relational rupture and brokenness, and I feel it. I feel it like a stained garment that I'm wearing. I feel like I carry it in with me. And if we're not careful, we can look at a complex set of problems that we all deal with. We're embedded in a web of them, a family system, a network, friends, our own souls and the way it's all interacting. We go, this is really broken. And in a complex, multifaceted, broken system, we will be tempted to think, I need a 10-step strategic plan on how to get this figured out. I need a complex solution to 
counteract this complex mess that I find myself in. The way that addiction has gripped me and it's tearing my life back down to rubble or the ways that my my broken relationships continue to trip me up and rob me of joy and forward motion. And all of a sudden, if we're not tempted, we go, I need a very complex solution to which Isaiah says, no, you don't. You need one thing. It is a simple, direct solution. Terrifying, but simple, direct. You need the descent of God. His prayer in the context of a people that have wandered and hardened and settled and become polluted and are fading away, turning to rubble. He says, you just need one thing. You need a compassionate father to come be with you and to not hold back. This is what you need. You see, what are they asking for? They are asking for God's felt presence. Now, if we just do a little bit of theology, what we can establish is this. God is everywhere. Psalm 139 says, if you go up to the heights, he's there. If you make your bed in the depths, he's there. You can't get outside of the presence of God. But what these people are praying for, as the prophet Isaiah is tending to them, they're praying for the felt presence of God. God, in a time and in a place for a community, would you allow your presence to be experienced? This isn't like an emotional thing. This is a stepping into reality. If you're already here, God, help us to live in light of reality. This is what we need. The pressing need of our day. This is the way he says it. Let me show it to you in the text in a few places. Chapter Chapter 63, verse 15, the first part says this, look down from heaven and see from your holy habitation or from your holy and beautiful habitation. So he's saying, look down on us, see us. Verse 17b says this, return for the sake of your servants and the tribes of your heritage. So the request is look at us, come back to us. The real thrust of the prayer comes in verse one and two of the next chapter. It says, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. That the mountains might quake at your presence. This is why I've chosen the term felt presence. He's saying, don't just come down, but let the stuff that you're in the presence of know it. That's quaking. It's feeling your presence. As when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil to make your name known to your adversaries that the nations might tremble at your presence, just like the mountains are, that we would all experience your nearness. And then in verse 9b, as he begins to sum up the prayer, he comes back to where he started saying, behold, please look, we are all your people. Do you feel that Isaiah is situated in a complex problem and the prayer is, look at us. Come back to us. Help us to experience your nearness. This is what we need. Sinners and sufferers in the room. You are caught in sin that continues to take you further than you intended to go. If you are suffering under the weight of a broken world, things that you have done and things that others have done to you, the one thing that you need more than anything else is the felt presence of God. We need a compassionate father to come be with us and not hold back. He has done this 
with some regularity throughout church history. He has showed up in certain places and certain moments in a way that he helps people quake in his presence in a way that has outlasting impact. One of my favorite stories is from 1857, 1858 in New York City. There was a guy that I, I love for lots of reasons, in part because we share the same name. His name was Jeremiah Lamphere. And uh, he was a businessman who, in the midst of a moment of great unrest nationally, the, the nation was on the verge of civil war. There was financial unrest. There was so much unknown. And Jeremiah Lamphere had this conviction that we have to pray. So he made flyers and he put them around and was spreading the word, come here to pray. And at the noon hour on the first day, he went into this room and six men, six businessmen joined him and they prayed. Nothing special happened. He said, well, I'm going to be here again tomorrow at noon. They went, came back. They came back with friends the next day and there were 20 men. The next day there were 30. They had outgrown their room and they started finding a new room. And within months, 10,000 people daily from noon to one in New York City were praying and little prayer meetings all across the city. It felt like the air in New York City had changed. People were talking about what God was doing in their lives. People were regularly coming into prayer meetings and just saying, I need to interrupt and confessing their sin and saying, this has been hidden about me and I don't want to be this way anymore. It was a people that had become desensitized and settled in that all of a sudden were making an about face because the presence of God was being poured out liberally on a people. There's one story that was told from eyewitness accounts at that point. There was a European cargo ship that pulled into port and someone that worked at the port comes out to the ship to help guide the men, climbs aboard to help them dock. And as he came aboard, he turned and he looked at all the men that had been working on this cargo ship crossing the ocean. And he said, something's happening in New York City. And a great hush fell over the boat as he shared with them this movement of people that were coming together and seeking God's face and experiencing his power. And by the time they had docked, the majority of the men on the boat had been converted to faith in Jesus Christ. And they got off the boat with expectation of, we want to experience his presence too. There were stories like this time and time again. It lasted for about two years. It was a season. Revival isn't the sort of thing that goes on without end. It was a season among a particular group of people, but it has had outsized impact that lasted for decades and generations as people were sent as missionaries and new mission agencies were founded and the gospel went to new places in the world because in moments of prayer where the presence of God was present, people's lives were reordered. It happened in New York City in 1857. It happened in all sorts of places. I, I could tell lots of stories. I'll tell maybe one or two more. In the early 1900s in India, there was a woman named Padita Ramabai. She was, um, she was a, a Hindu social reformer that met Jesus. And she started to take care of widows, uh, this desire for social reform. She was tending to those that were being overlooked and she was raising up young women to do the same. And she trained 30 women and the importance of communal prayer and the declaration of Jesus' name. And then she sent these women out to start prayer gatherings and to do these things. And there was a radical wildfire movement of the presence of God. Amy Carmichael, a famed missionary that you may have heard of that spent time in India, ended up at one of the prayer gatherings led by one of the women trained by Pandita. And as, they, as she attended, what she said is this, the presence of God was startling and awful. I didn't know what to do. 
She describes the prayers of the people confessing their sin and being met with the presence of God like waves that were crashing over. She said it sounded like rumbling as we all together with one voice were longing for God. Amy Carmichael's life was reordered by attending one of these moments because the presence of God was being poured out liberally in a season on a people. You can talk about the Scottish Isle of the Hebrides Isles in 1949. Two women in their 80s that began to pray together, asking God to renew their territory. And on the islands of the Hebrides, there was such a movement of God that the the jails had to be closed because there was no one to put in there. I mean, people and cultures and communities that go, these are multifaceted issues. We've got some problems here. We've got issues, do we not? And we think, oh, all of the ways that we want to address these issues. And in the midst of it, the prophet enters the room and says, oh, that a group of people would just ask God to come down. That they would be willing to say, rend the heavens and come be with us, asking for the felt presence of God. You see, revival is seasonal. And it's marked by the presence of God meeting a community of people in a particular time and way. This is what these different communities experienced along the way. Well, what we've articulated is who's asking. Who's asking the prayers? Those who've become a shell of what they once were. What are they asking for? The felt presence of God. Who are they asking? They're asking a compassionate father. This is who they're asking. If you look back at verse 15 and 16 with me, you see the way this prayer begins. He says, look down from heaven and see from your holy and beautiful habitation, where are your zeal and your might? The word for zeal uh, carries the connotation of a flushed face, especially of, of someone that's marked with like romantic affection or pursuit. And so the idea is, God, Look at us with love. You care about us and we're suffering. Like look down and we want you to be red-faced and passionate to come for your people. He says, the stirring of your inner parts and your compassion are held back from me. The Hebrew word for compassion is the same word for womb. The idea is the, the warm and the secret place that creates the context for life to happen. That's the compassion of God. They're saying, God, you've you've held back from us, but don't envelop us. Pour out your compassion on this is who you are, God. You are the compassionate Father. And then we learn in the the second part of verse 16, it says, You, O Lord, are our Father, our Redeemer from of old is your name. What we learn is that the compassionate Father is a Redeemer. The reason he's willing to pay the price to rescue his people back is because. His compassion has grown warm for a people that he loves. The compassionate father is the redeemer. And then beautifully later in the prayer, we also learn that the compassionate father is a potter. Look at verse eight with me. But now, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay. You are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. (laughs) I love this imagery, especially because it comes right on the heels of verse seven. We read earlier in verse seven that the people had melted. The sum total of them becoming a shell of what they once were is that they've just melted into a puddle. And then in the next verse, here's the potter and he's at the wheel and he's working. In a sense, what's hardened can't be used, but what's melted can. 
what is soft and malleable can. And those that have melted in the hands of their iniquities find out in the next verse, but oh, you're not just in the hands of your iniquities. You're in the hands of your compassionate father and he's at the wheel. We were talking about this at dinner the other night as a family, considering what might it have been like to be clay? Have you ever figured out, like, what's the experience of clay? You know the, the verb that is used when it comes to producing clay? It's thrown. Pottery is thrown. You know, it's like violent. The idea is that this lump of clay is thrown onto a wheel, and then the wheel starts spinning really quickly. And I was thinking, like, what would it be like to be clay? You're like, I can't find the horizon line, quite literally. Give me a second. It's dizzying to, like, be spinning quickly on the wheel. And then when imperfections bubble up, do you know what the potter does that is committed to making something beautiful out of this lump? Starts working again. There was a professional potter in the first service, and she said, after this, do you know what happens? Gets taken off of the wheel and has to breathe and has to have all of the oxygen that ruined the wall worked out of it. Has to wait on the sidelines and be worked because if it was put into the kiln with the air bubble still in it, it would explode in the heat. Like, oh, that's interesting. I'll preach that. (laughs) And I did. And then the potter puts it back on and spins and his hand is at work in the clay. And then beautifully, when it's finally formed, that clay has to be set aside and weighed again. Just waiting. It feels like nothing is happening as she was telling me because it's all of the, all of the moisture has to evaporate out. And then it's put into a kiln. And do you know how hot a kiln is? 2,000 degrees. It takes nine hours to get up to that temperature. Just imagining what it might be like to be clay. Like, whoo, it's getting hot in here. I've been in here for a while. And then the second hour and the third hour, now we're over a thousand degrees. We're still climbing and you're like, whoo. Somebody left me in here. I think I'm supposed to get out now. And he just waits and waits. 2,000 degrees. And then once it hits 2,000 degrees after nine hours, it has to stay in the oven another nine hours while the temperature very slowly comes back down. Do you feel it? The invitation to rend the heavens and come down is a fearsome prayer. It's like an enter at your own risk. What you're saying is, compassionate Father, don't be done with me. Like, come put your hands on me. And even if it means the world keeps spinning, and at times it feels like a great crushing, and at times like it feels like the temperature is being turned up, what we're inviting the Father to do is to make something beautiful out of us. It is a bold prayer to say, compassionate Father, come be with us, and don't hold back. Ooh. I think there's a reason people don't pray for revival, honestly. And it's true in my heart. I've been wrestling with this. It's because we don't want it. Quite frankly, I think, man, if we could just like skate by and keep God at a proper distance and just kind of like live our happy lives with a little bit of God sprinkled in, I think that would be maybe more manageable. But Isaiah is saying the thing that you need for the complex problems that are plaguing your life is the descent of God. You need him to show up and to do his work. 
In verse 12, in essence, what he's saying is don't hold back. He says, will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us so terribly? It's the same word that he quoted back at the beginning of the prayer. He says, don't restrain yourself. Don't hold yourself back. We want all of it. We want all of you. See, we're about to enter a season of prayer and fasting. Inviting a community, both this community that you can see in this room and a hundred plus other churches from all around the city to say, we can't demand revival. We can't manage it. We can't manipulate it. But we could together in hunger and in prayer begin to cultivate a desire for it. Say, would we be the sorts of people that would allow the scriptures to teach us how to pray and to begin to say, oh, compassionate father, come be with us. Come be with us as redeemer. Come be with us as potter. Redeem us and make something beautiful out of us, no matter how painful, no matter how hot, no matter how much pressure there is. God, we want to be your people. Would you be willing to lean in with the expectation that the one thing we most need is his felt presence? Brothers, sisters, it's what you need. Would we admit it together? Ask for it together. The beautiful reality, two final notes, is this. One, in Jesus, the compassionate father did not hold back. He didn't. He came down. He rend the heavens and came down. He, he came and was with us with passion for his people, a face that was flush with desire for his people, calling them to himself like a bride, willing to pay the price to redeem them, willing to put his hands into the, the realities of their experience to shape them into something rich and beautiful. And then in his resurrection and his ascension, he was able finally to freely and liberally pour out the Holy Spirit on all of God's people because everything had been accomplished for righteousness sake. We now have access to the presence of God day to day and moment to moment like the people throughout all of the old covenant didn't. He didn't hold back in Jesus. The second thing I need you to hear is this. He won't hold back in Jesus. You see, he didn't. A work in the past that was stamped in a cross and an empty tomb, it is true, it is historical, it is fixed, it is yours and it is mine, but it's not the end of the story. He's alive. He's at the right hand of the Father as a great high priest praying for his people that God would strengthen them in the midst of their temptation. He continues to pour out the Holy Spirit on those that hunger for him. We see in the book of Acts that a filling in the spirit doesn't just come when we say yes to Jesus the first time, but we're the sorts of people that can be filled and refreshed time and again, empowered by God's presence. It's not just a once and for all. He is in an ongoing way, reigning supreme, saying, come to me freely. I will pour myself out on you. You see, he didn't hold back and he won't hold back. Oh, that we would be the sort of courageous, fearless, melted people that come to the Father and say, compassionate Father, come be with us and don't hold back. With all that that means, all the realities of the awful presence of God, all the ways that we will be uncomfortably exposed if he answers this question. Our hidden sin, 
Our games, our hedging, our protection, our half measures, they all get blown up in a season like that. So my question is, are you willing to pray the way the scriptures teach us to pray? Would you lean in? We can't manage it, manipulate it, or demand it, but we can be the sorts of people that ask for it. So would you join us in the next month of prayer and fasting and pray, compassionate Father, come be with us. Ooh. And don't hold back. Let me pray. God, we need you. We all have multifaceted problems created by our sin and the sin of others. And we cannot fix it. We cannot cleanse ourselves. We cannot create structure where we have faded and melted. We need a renewing work of your spirit. So would you come and move? Come and move in power. Reveal yourself in profound ways in ways that leave us a transformed people. Compassionate Father, come be with us and don't hold back. Amen.